There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guests are Dr. Elizabeth Anderson Fletcher and Jeff Dill. Dr. Anderson Fletcher is Associate Professor of Supply Chain Management in the Department of Decision and Information Sciences in the C.T. Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston, with a joint faculty appointment in the Hobby School of Public Affairs. She's Faculty Director of Bauer Honors, Director of Accreditation in the Hobby School, and Associate Director of the UH First Responder Program in the Department of Psychology. She's also a volunteer firefighter with 11 years of service, recently promoted to chaplain, I'm sorry, recently promoted to captain, and is a chaplain. She was a project director for First Responder Mental Health and Wellness, a grant awarded to the Cypress Creek Fire Department by the Office of the Governor, State of Texas Criminal Justice Division. She was instrumental in building Cypress Creek's mental wellness program, which offers firefighters peer support, chaplaincy services, and licensed professional counseling through a partnership with the clinical practice. Jeff Dill is a retired captain of the Palatine Rural Fire Protection District in Inverness, Illinois, organized counseling services for firefighters in 2009, and then founded the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. In July of 2021, Jeff accepted the position of Behavioral Health Administrator with Las Vegas Fire and Rescue. Liz and Jeff, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Uh, honored to be here today. Thank you for having us on. No, we appreciate your time, uh, especially away from the busy work and important work that you're doing. So let's get right into it. Volunteer firefighters outnumber their full-time peers. Liz, you're also a professor and a volunteer firefighter. Jeff, you started as a volunteer firefighter, then went full-time, but you also earned a master's degree and became a licensed counselor. For people who aren't familiar with volunteer firefighters, would you classify yourselves as outliers or fairly representative of volunteer firefighters? Well, I'll, I'll start on that one. I think I'm an outlier. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's various types of volunteers. Uh, I've, you know, some people know that they want a career in the fire service early on, and so they may volunteer with their local department, even as young as 18. Um, and then there are career, I'm just thinking of my department and the people I've known who have been volunteers. Uh, some are maybe career firefighters at um, another department and then volunteer in addition in the local community. And then maybe some people with day jobs that are somewhat related. Um, you know, I've known a person in the safety industry with an oil company who was also volunteer firefighter, um, some medical folks, you know, nurses, um, ER professionals, and then the people with totally unrelated day jobs. And I think that's what I am. You know, Chris, when you, you look at the 1.1 million firefighters in America and to know that 70% of them are volunteers, uh, you're going to get a cross-section across America. And I'm one of them. I was 29 when I uh, went into the fire service. I'd done a lot of different things in my life. I broadcast uh, and used to cover the Chicago Bulls and interview Michael Jordan. I worked for a minor league baseball team. I worked PGA Tour. So I had a lot of different things. And then I was uh, approached by my neighbor, who was a deputy chief, said, hey, we're looking for a volunteer firefighter. I said, ah, sure, what the heck? I've done so many other things. And uh, so I absolutely loved it. They sent me through the academy, an EMT paramedic class. And uh, four years later, and in 1995, I went career with Palatine Rural. So it's, uh, you know, like I said, we all have different stories. And uh, when you have that many firefighters uh, looking to help out their communities. I had no idea about your career prior to your career. Uh, that's fascinating. And my listeners and viewers, I'm a huge sports junkie. So that's pretty cool stuff as far as I'm concerned. But what you're doing now is obviously much cooler. What drew each of you to become firefighters? Liz, may you want to go first? I um, was at a point in my life where um, I, for a couple of years, I'd been wanting to give back. And <laughs> I joke about it, but I knew that if I volunteered at the Humane Society, I'd have a million dogs and cry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but seriously, I, um, I used to ride horses and back, uh, I guess, a couple of years before I volunteered, there was a, a large uh, three-county fire here. And my um, a friend of mine lost her horse in a barn fire, and that kind of got me thinking 
about uh, the fire service. Yeah, like I said, uh, you know, I, I've done so many things in my life, but when I started reflecting, I was talking this over with my bride, uh, who will be 43 years in November, so she's always my bride. Uh, her name's Karen. Uh, but, uh, you know, I started reflecting. I, I remember walking home when I was like 12 or 13 from school and a motorcycle accident happened right in front of me. And the lady that uh, was on the bike uh, lost her leg. And, and, I, and I tend to recall thinking that, you know, this is something I want to do as I watch, you know, Grease Ambulance Service uh, come out there and, and help this young lady. And so I think that was always in the back of my mind. I, I wanted to get into a field where I could really help people. I'm going to give you some brownie points there. It's always good to, to comment on your bride during the show. So, so kudos to you for that. <laughs> and Jeff, what motivated you to become a licensed counselor whose practice focuses on firefighters and then found the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance? Well, you know, I was cruising along as a battalion chief in my career in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit. And Division One outside of Chicago sent out numerous firefighters. And when they came back, they showed me videos and pictures. They were picking up bodies in the streets and the devastation. And, and they were looking for some help. So they went to their employee assistant program counselors, good people. But this is 2005. We never talked about behavioral health in the fire service at that time or EMS world. And so, so I thought, well, how can I give some help to my brothers and sisters? And decided to uh, follow through by getting my master's degree and became a licensed counselor. And, and actually in 2009, like you mentioned, I founded Counseling Services for Firefighters, and I was training counselors and chaplains that, hey, you want to work with us? You, you need to understand this. We're, we're just a little bit different. Uh, not that it's wrong from, I'm sure, my point, Liz's viewpoint, uh, but, uh, you know, it was working out well. And then in early 2010, I started receiving emails and phone calls from all over the world saying, do you do anything about firefighter suicides? And I had never heard of this, anything like that. So I did a lot of research, I mean, a ton of research and found out that there were no organizations tracking these tragic events. So my wife and I, we founded Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance in 2010, and uh, we've been going strong now for 14 years. How and when did you two meet and start working together? I was trying to remember this, and I think uh, it was right after I had heard about the suicide problem in the and the fire service. And I had just, uh, for my day job, I had just gone back to faculty after being in administration for 11 years. So I was restarting a research agenda. And uh, maybe a year into uh, becoming a volunteer firefighter, I was attending a class and a chaplain was presenting and mentioned the suicide problem. And I, I, I just was uh, flabbergasted. I had, I had no idea. So I talked to him afterward and then you know, kind of like uh, a Jack Russell on a squirrel, <laughs> I got interested in pursuing a research agenda. And I think that I either cold called Jeff or emailed him and we set up a phone conversation. And, um, and that's when I first heard him say the term cultural brainwashing, you know, about the culture of the fire service. He'll talk about that later. But I think the first actual project we work on was the uh, VCOS you know, the volunteer combination officer section of the IAFC, the yellow ribbon report on mental wellness. I think that was the first time. I, I agree. but and, and what got us to the point for the white paper was, uh, I go back to when I went for my master's degree, my first paper that I wrote, uh, the professor put an A on there, then he circled and said, see me. And I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. You know, so I'm remembering my high school days when the teacher would always say, see me. And uh, you know, he said, great, great paper, uh, you know, perspective from the first responder world that I'd never seen before. He said, but you'll never write a white paper. And I said, why? I said, not that at that time, I was thinking about writing a white paper since 2007. And he said, well, because you write from the heart and, your, and your, your speech is from your heart. And that's not what they need. So when it came about that I wanted to write a white paper, I instantly thought of Liz because I've seen her work. Uh, we have a great relationship and I know she's just so very darn professional. And uh, I contacted her and said, hey, I have this thing I want to discuss with you. And, and she uh, came up with some great ideas. And so I just kind of fed her the information and the survey and she did the writing so eloquently that uh, the white paper just has been a tremendous hit in the first responder world on moral injury. 
And are you currently working on anything together? I'll let Liz. Uh... We're, we're actually um, planning two additional white papers so far. I'm sure it'll be more than that. We've got a lot of ideas between us. And um, we, the, the second one, we can talk about it later, but we're looking at focusing on best practices in treatment uh, for moral injury, in addition to more kind of a follow on to the first paper, but more explanation of the relationship and differences of symptoms of PTSD and moral injury, and then, you know, looking at the types of treatment. Right. I, I, think, oh, sorry, I think we want to get uh, a larger uh, sample as well. So. so let's dive into that a little bit deeper. You've mentioned moral injury a few times here, and I'm hearing those words a lot more these days and maybe even more than post-traumatic stress. Could one of you please tell us what is moral injury and especially as it applies to firefighters and other first responders? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I was working here in Vegas when a couple firefighters called me to the station and said, Jeff, can you watch this video? It was a doctor talking about moral injury and first responders. And they said, well, have you heard of it? And I said, well, being a licensed counselor, but it was never really talked about and discussed since it's not in the DSM-5. So it wasn't really highlighted. So I started doing a lot of research and you know working with Liz, but I, I talked to the Shea Center and also uh, Dr. Litz out of Boston University who created the Moral Injury Outcome Scale and quickly found out. And I also contacted the military and talked to them because they had been doing studies in the military on moral injury for their soldiers and found out rather quickly that uh, where PTSD is trauma, fear-based uh, things that we see, uh, moral injury is more our, our wounds, our spirit, and our heart, and our soul. And when I started really looking at all the definitions of what moral injury was and finding that one of the key aspects of it, and there's many of them, but one of them is, is betrayal. And betrayal either by management or self or others. And then I started really contemplating, looking at my data, and seeing that the number one known reason for our brothers and sisters killing themselves is relationships, whether it's at home or at work. And so that's, you know, when I, I presented that idea to Liz, and I think she was uh, pretty excited about it. And she said, hey, I, I think we got something here. And uh, the way she drew up the paper and the outline, it, it, it hit exactly what where I wanted to go with the white paper. And Jeff, we were talking a few weeks ago and you made the point that firefighters didn't really talk about mental health a decade or so ago, let alone 30 or 40 years ago, because everyone just buried it. Right. What was, what was the reason back then? Is it different across the board in the profession today, or is there still a lot more to be done? Well, no doubt there's been some changes, but there's still so much more that we can learn and we will learn. Like I said, now we're talking about moral injury when it was all PTSD based. And that was... You know, Liz mentioned it, that term cultural brainwashing was a phrase that I coined way back in 2010. And what it truly means, and let me ask you this, Chris, if I said the word firefighter to you, what words come to your mind? Truck, bravery, helmet, water, hose, catnetry. Yeah, and all, but when, it, when I talk, when you talk about specific, the person, the, the firefighter, know what what words might come to your mind you said brave is one of them uh physical fitness uh intelligent uh put themselves before others yeah self-sacrificing courageous and when we do workshops for either our uh, clinicians and chaplains or our families I, I put that question to them and i get the same thing you know they're brave they're strong and yet <clears throat> In 14 years, I've never heard anyone say, well, you know, they have a lot of anger issues. They drink like fish. Uh, their communications are just horrific. And so society's culturally brainwashed. And so what it means, cultural brainwashing, is every time we put this uniform on, we're expected to act in a certain manner, which we just uh, alluded to. And yet when you're challenged in your personal professional life with issues, whether it's relationships, depression, addiction, sleep deprivation, you're expected to go it alone, uh, not show any weakness. And who expects that? Well, our brothers and sisters we work with, the communities we serve, and the traditions of the fire service. And now you can see why so many of us struggle about that. It, it has gotten better. There's no doubt about it. I think two key factors when I look about 
because in 2010, we, we got beat up. Uh, when we started talking about PTSD and suicide, uh, there was there was a lot of, uh, let's just say, angry fans uh, sending emails saying, uh, PTSD, that's a military, and suicides, you're making up the numbers. <clears throat> but our, I think our two greatest advances have been uh, peer support development, as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, as well as counselors and chaplains really understanding our world and our and our language as well as our families. And Liz, what's your perspective on Jeff's observations? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, exactly um, spot on. It's the um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still you know stigma, um, you know lack of access to. Uh, behavioral health services. We'll talk, you know, more about that. But the the whole the whole environment. I mean, it, the in the Yellow Ribbon Report, we use the phrase, you know, the fire service culture. You know, suck it up, Buttercup, or as I prefer to say, since my brother's a police officer, I say, you know, suck it up. If you can't stand the heat, go be a cop. <laughs> but um, seriously, the, it, there has been a culture of you know, rough, tough. Um, not um, admitting to feelings and those sorts of things. But I'll say when I I joined my fire department, um, you know, 11 or so years ago, I saw a little bit of that, but our department, I think, was much further along in terms of, you know, talking about reactions to calls uh, than what I hear, you know, some of the other people go through. And again, that's been more recent. Um, The... I think that the culture in the department, it starts at the top with the chiefs and it also, it depends upon the company officer and, you know, engine company officers, that's the glue of the organization. And, you know, for example, hypothetically, if, you know, a rookie's on the truck and there's a, you know, a a really bad, uh, you know, uh, call, maybe it's an ejection uh, medical call, um, then uh, from an uh, MVI motor vehicle incident, and comes back and is and is disturbed by the call and says something to the captain, the words that come out of that uh, captain's mouth will impact that rookie's career. I mean, that sounds, you know, really powerful, but it is. Because if it is, oh, well, you know, get used to it, you're going to see it all the time, that, you know, minimizes that. But if the the officer, you know, sits everybody down around the table and, you know, talks about reactions to it, it's it can be really helpful. And then also to throw in there something about if you, if you're still having, um, you know, thought intrusive thoughts about the particular call um, it's important to get um, help. And here's how you can go about that. You know, that's a lot of pressure on company officers, but I think that's what it takes. And Liz, your department is involved in mental health and wellness grant. Have any innovations come from that project or is that even the goal? Um, I, th- I think there, so our, our program is a combination of a, of a peer support team. We've got about 13 mm-hmm. on that. We have, uh, my training chief is the director of the mental wellness program. I'm associate director. So we have peer, we have two chaplains in the department. I'm one of them. And then we have a relationship with a clinical practice uh, of licensed professional counselors in our district. And so we, um, we, the department pays even after the grant was over. We, we saw so much um, uh, usage in, in improvement in the numbers that the department pays for all of our firefighters um, and other you know, civilian employees plus spouses plus family. So we've got, we've got you know, young children in counseling. The innovative thing that I uh, think that we did was we have a station embedded counseling and what that means is that we have licensed professional counselors um, coming through the stations uh, a couple of times a week, and we usually have a couple of different counselors so that you know, so that you know, number one, so that the the original goal was to destigmatize, you know, to set the counselors are people; they're not aliens, right? And to bring them in the the stations and get to know, but also. I think it um, a big piece of it was also getting the counselors um, familiar with the fire service. You know, that's one of the things that Jeff had talked about. You know, counselors need to understand. And unless a counselor has been a first responder or has a family relationship, 
then typically they don't have any clue. Um, so I've, I've seen it be really helpful. The other thing that I'll mention regarding the stigma is that um, let's say that, uh, you know, a young firefighter, young rookie firefighter, you know, struggling with marriage problems, um, you know, reactions to call, you know, whatever it is, if there's a counselor in the station that's kind of normalized this, you know, talking about things, you know, he could say, you know, hey, you know, can I talk to you for a few minutes out in the bay? And that conversation can pave the way for you know, maybe that rookie will then recognize some of the signs and symptoms of, you know, depression, you know, uh, moral injury, and uh, make an appointment with the counseling center through that um, interaction with the counselor. If that had not, if that none of that existed, you know, what's the probability that that rookie would recognize that um, he or she was having problems and then seek out the phone number of the counseling center? Jeff, I want to go back to something you talked about a few minutes ago. When you and I spoke a few weeks ago, you asked me that question in terms of what words do I think of when I think of a firefighter? And I think one of the words I used was hero or heroine. And you talked about your, your response had something to do with, you know, exactly. You know, we've got a, a cape on and we're, you know, climbing a tree and, and, and doing all that stuff. It touched on a few of the issues that firefighters might be facing, but what are some of the specific mental health challenges commonly faced by first responders and firefighters? Well, when I uh, interviewed over 600 of our brothers and sisters, we pass out tip cards. Uh, what are the top five warning signs uh, when we when we look at those? And that's that recklessness and our impulsiveness, anger. Anger is a big issue in, in our world. Uh, we begin to isolate, loss of confidence in our abilities, and then, of course, sleep deprivation. Sleep is a really big issue in our world for both volunteers and career because as volunteers they sign up for shifts and they're expected when those pagers go off to respond and and i lived that for six years and so it becomes a very big issue for not only the firefighter but for the family the spouses and partners um, you know but there, there's just so many different things that we are challenged on because it's different for everyone else now, if you have two uh, fire medics going on a call and it's a Pete's or a trauma, you know, maybe one of the firefighter medics uh, really struggles with it because they have a child at that age and the other medic says, oh, that was just a, just a really bad call. And then two hours later, they go on a cancer patient and maybe the one that wasn't struggling earlier is now struggling because maybe his mother or father is going through that and he absorbs that that pain and those memories. And so it, it's a challenge every day for every individual. It seems like there's a things would be so very similar, but uh, they're not in reality. So these are the things that we as behavioral health people have to make sure that we provide the proper resources that cover all different types of issues that are, are going on. But I would say, you know, when we look at addictions and uh, medical issues, uh, depression, depression's a really tough one. Uh, but in our data, the number one known reason for our brothers and sisters killing themselves is, like I said, relationships. You know, and you highlight things that we as civilians just take for granted in terms of what first responders see every day. And you think about, you know, we talked before the Chicago Fire TV show and they go and they get the call and they put the fire out and everything's great, but you don't think about the things on the other side of that door that you see when you get in there. And I shared with you when we spoke, a friend of mine who's been a career firefighter in New Jersey recently was on a call and found a dead baby. And he and his wife were trying to start a family. And that hit him where he actually had to take a month off and get himself checked in and go through protocol for that. And so... You know, it's not all TV and movies, as we talked about, Liz, you really wanted to highlight that when we spoke a month ago. And so I appreciate you sharing some of those anecdotes and stories in terms of what you actually see on a day in and day out basis. And one question I have for both of you is, you know, we've talked about stigma in terms of not seeking treatment. Is one of the reasons for not seeking treatment because of fear of not getting a promotion? Uh, that can come into play. There, there's no doubt about it. Uh, also, the confidentiality of that will come into play for promotions. But um, I, I think more of it is that we don't want to be judged poorly uh, by our brothers and sisters and thinking we're weak. And, and when I say that loss of confidence and skills in our top five, early on it was because we were dealing with issues. But what we've seen lately, which is very sad, 
is that when someone stands up and says, hey, I, I need to go to inpatient, I'm struggling with whatever it is, PTSD, addictions, depression, and everyone claps and pats them on the back and says, kudos for you. And then they come back 45, 60 days later, and a lot of the thought process is, oh, wait, they're, they're coming back to our shift. Uh, uh, will they be able to do the job? And therefore, it starts instilling that belief in that person who got help. Was I wrong for speaking up? And so, you know, and we saw it in 2019. I received seven phone calls from uh, firefighters across the U.S. who went and got help and were diagnosed with PTSD and were fired. And so that becomes a problem because no one's going to stand up and say, hey, uh, I, I think I'm dealing with PTSD because they, they want to hold on to their job. Anything to add there, Liz? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this, this stigma, you know, is definitely there and it's the idea of uh, fitness for duty. You know, I think it's the same for law enforcement officers, you know, uh, different, you know, carrying a gun is different than carrying a Halligan tool, but you know, it's that, you know, do others think I'm not fit for duty because I'm either going through this now or I got help for this thing and they know about it. And, and not only their brothers and sisters they work with, but their loved ones. I, I've talked to so many who said, hey, you know what, I, I can't tell them. You know, they'll think uh, I'm weak. I can't show any tears. So it's a, it's a struggle, sir. We've been talking to Dr. Elizabeth Anderson Fletcher and Jeff Dill, and we'll be right back after a short break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show and we are back i'm chris meek host of next steps forward and my guests today are elizabeth anderson fletcher and jeff dill liz is an associate professor of supply chain management at the university of houston associate director of the uh first responder program in the department of psychology and a volunteer firefighter with the Cypress Creek Fire Department and Harris County Emergency Services, District Number 13, as well as a chaplain. Jeff Dill is a former firefighter, founder of the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance, and in July of 2021, he accepted the position of Behavioral Health Administrator with Las Vegas Fire and Rescue. Liz, would you provide an overview of the University of Houston's first responder program and its objectives, please? The um, uh, U of H's first responder program was founded by Dr. Anka Bionovich, and she is a professor in our Department of Psychology. She also runs the, the Center for uh, uh, tra Trauma and Stress Studies, and she founded the, uh, the First Responder Program, or the FRP, a couple of years ago, and asked me to come on as Associate Director. And my role primarily, because of my relationship with the uh, you know, practitioners in the fire service is to bring on um, some of the departments in the area to represent 
you know, one of the target audiences for the FRP. Now, what is the FRP? It's a consortium of researchers across the University of Houston, but other universities. And uh, we also have, you know, uh, we, we have a law enforcement agency and then multiple fire departments represented. And the, the goal of the program, well, there's several goals, but the philosophy is, you know, as academics, we're interested in, you know, research publications. And that's what we do. Uh, but we want our research not to just gather dust on a shelf. We want it to actually impact the lives of people in these departments. And so we get feedback from uh, the departments, you know, the, the chiefs uh, in particular, about, you know, certain issues that they're interested in exploring. Uh, for example, a recent uh, project uh, was on the vulnerability of firefighters uh, to COVID, you know, during the uh, pandemic, you know, how what, what was the risk of getting COVID with the medical calls and then how many did and the impact, but not just the physical impact, but the impact on the mental wellness, you know, the anxiety, the fear, uh, these types of things. Um, the, the other piece of the first responder program, what we want to understand, uh, not just from a research perspective, but from what chiefs perceive to be the um, problems with uh, mental wellness in their departments. The, um, we also want to, you know, link people together so that, you know, ac academics and practitioners can work together to solve these problems. The, um, and then uh, one of the goals of the first responder program is to uh, get into uh, providing therapy services, maybe telehealth types of things. So, and again, the, the organization is really new, just a few years, a few years old. Uh, we would like to take it uh, larger than just the university level. So we've been talking about ways to, to do that with um, additional resources. But, you know, again, it's all about um, tailoring the research to make an impact in people's lives. Jeff, you mentioned the first half of the show, some of the mental health challenges that firefighters face, but how would you rank the percentage of those mental health issues for the firefighters you work with? And by that, I mean, is post-traumatic stress the most common issue or anxiety, addiction, suicide ideation? Yeah, I, I would look at it in my experience that stress and anxiety is right up there followed with along with relationship issues. I see it time and time again across the United States, wherever I speak. I've, I've traveled now over a million miles in the last 10 years, uh, speaking to our brothers and sisters. And in our conversations, it, it is. It's the depression. It's the addictions. They, they hide their pain through all sorts of types of addictions. Alcohol, of course, being the number one, uh, followed by gambling. Because gambling feeds that adrenaline that flows through us every time the tones go off. So when we look at all these issues, along with sleep, sleep deprivation, I mean, Chris, we could we could talk for hours upon hours on the different schedules and how it affects our, our bodies and the sleep issues. And so all these things combined uh, have really put us uh, behind the eight ball in, in regard to understanding behavioral health in the fire service, since, like I said, we never addressed it. We might have addressed it on our own at home by uh, you know, drinking or lack of communications. Uh, and years ago, I remember when I came on the job, it was normal for companies to go out to the bar at seven in the morning after shift uh, to relax. And, and sometimes, not that I condone the drinking, but I think it allowed them to alleviate any of those stress and anxieties before they went home and approached their families. So, you know, you, when we look at all these different challenges that we face and the ones that are still unseen, we have a long ways to go with regard because until they can get robots to do our, our jobs, we're, we're dealing with human beings and the, the personalities and their emotions. Here's a question for the two of you. Are there barriers beyond the self-imposed ones that first responders face in seeking help for their mental health concerns? And can those barriers be addressed by promoting a more open culture of support and access to care? Well, I, I think some of the logistical barriers you know, how do I get time off work? But then if I don't want my spouse to know that I'm seeking help, you know, when can I do that? 
uh, and then paying for it. You know, is, is the department going to pay for it? Um, you know, Jeff mentioned um, earlier about EAPs. You know, uh, EAPs are great for maybe public works employees and accountants, but maybe not for, you know, for counselors who don't understand the, um, you know, what we do. Uh, and I heard this in a focus group after the a year after we um, released the Yellow Ribbon Report. Uh, what someone was saying, well, you know, talking about EAPs, if it takes you four sessions to describe what you do, that's not helpful. And if you start talking about um, something that's bothering you regarding a call and the counselor has to leave to go be ill <laughs> and come back, that's not helpful either. Um, so I think there's some logistical barriers. Uh, Jeff, you want to pick up on the other barriers? Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues that we also face is we lay our lives down on a line for our community, but also our brothers and sisters. And so developing trust is very difficult when you start talking about your own emotions to a counselor or peer support team member. And, you know, when we started doing uh, surveys on what were some of those barriers, confidentiality and trust were the top two. Now, if I say something to you, is it going to get back to the chief? Uh, will others hear about it? And unfortunately, we've seen uh, some issues across the U.S. where someone went to a counselor or a chaplain and that unfortunate issue, it was leaked out. And so that spreads like wildfire. So if there's a, a confidentiality break in Maine by two in the afternoon, people will know about it in California. And it's just that's the way we are in our world. Don't go to that person. That we can't trust them. And that's why I've always stated that if your peer support team members, if they ever have a breach of confidentiality, that team's done for 10 years. It, it takes a long time to build up trust when you're talking about people opening up their hearts. And that's what they're doing. They're opening up their hearts and souls to peer support team members or chaplains and counselors. And you have to hold that confidentiality. I mean, we've, we've now validated 1,910 fire and EMS suicides over the last years and if i was to ever give out a department or let a name out we, we'd be done and so you have to and it's stressful liz liz will tell you this it's stressful to keep that confidentiality uh, you know when you see a chief at a conference then you can't walk up to him say hey, chief how you doing they'll say well how do you know jeff you know and so well what's he gonna say well our department had a suicide so jeff you know we talked to jeff so i have to be very uh kind of cold shoulder to a lot of people unless they, because I, I always end our conversations when I validate the, the suicides is that, hey, no one will ever know that you and I talked unless it came out from your side. And, and it's true. And so building trust amongst the people that you work with is imperative. Let's talk for a minute about the types of treatment firefighters and first responders can receive. You've talked about peer support. You've talked about the traditional uh, chaplain or uh, clinician, psychologist. Do you think that today's world of firefighters, you know, the, the, old, the old phrase of it's not your daddy's Cadillac, it's not your daddy's firefighter, with a younger generation, do they think they'd be able to more of a, a tech solution, whether it be app-based or virtual reality? I, I will tell you that I think, like I said, one, one of the greatest advancements we have in the past years are clinicians understanding our world, it has brought over a, a plethora of different types of treatments. And that's what we need because not every, when I started in 2010, wherever I looked, it was all CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, it's talk therapy. That's, that's what everything was used from relationships to PTSD. And, and now, I mean, Liz can vouch, I'm sure she can add more. I mean, you have EMDR, you have equine, you have brain mapping, you have ketamine IVs. You have stellate uh, ganglion uh, shots. Uh, I, here out in ours, we use uh, brain performance by Vantania, our, our firefighters in this area. And so there's just so many different types of therapies out there because not everything works for everyone. So you have to have different types of resources for your people. Liz, anything to add there? I um, I was just thinking as as Jeff was talking about uh, one of the things um, about uh, that's really important 
I'm, I'm kind of going back to the peer support idea. And last week I um, attended the IAFF's uh, three-day online peer support training, um, you know, for my role in the department. And in that training, there was an entire section on self-care. And I joke that I hate the term <laughs> because I'm not very good at it. I, I've decided I'm going to call it self-preservation. <laughs> but I think that's something that I'm hoping the, the younger generation, that they're more aware of the need to take care of themselves. I see it in my students. Um, I teach honor students and they're probably, most of them are juniors and seniors, um, you know, early 20s. So that was probably the generation of the, the new, you know, firefighters coming in. And I've seen that they tend to admit more about the importance of self-care and, you know, being aware of their emotional health, um, uh, mental health, uh, those sorts of things. And I, I'm just hoping that that's the case of this sudden, this uh, next generation of firefighters. Yeah, Liz hit the nail on the head on that. Uh, now we, uh, FBHA, I coined a phrase called internal size up many, many years ago. And what it means to me is that Every one of us needs to ask ourselves two questions every day. Why am I acting this way? Why am I feeling this way? And the best thing that we can do is listen to others because they see us so much better than we see ourselves. And, and that's important because we need to listen to ourselves when we're not sleeping. We feel like our anxiety is too great. So that self-care is absolutely, we're accountable for our own actions. And yet we still can listen to others to say, hey, maybe you are right. I, I am acting a little differently, a little more anger, uh, a little more isolated. So that self-care is a major aspect within the behavioral health movement. You've both touched on the work environment before in terms of sleep deprivation, organizational culture, shift work. You layer in things like high pressure situations. You know, How does all that combined contribute to the mental health needs of first responders? I'm a, I'm a firm believer, and uh, Liz mentioned it earlier, it starts from the top. Uh, yeah, you have to have a, a mayor, a board of trustees, a fire chief that is all on board in helping uh, our brothers and sisters when it comes to behavioral health. You know, we started consulting with organizations on creating behavioral health programs for your departments, and it's, it's more than just a, an EAP and a peer support team. For us, it's 12 different points. It starts in your academies, it trains your families, your chaplains, your EAP programs, your outside resources, counselors, training them uh, as a resource and building guidelines and policies. Um, and you know, our, our 12th point is retirement. You know, what are we doing instead of just giving them a party and an ax on a board and say, hey, thanks for all your time and see ya. I mean, we, we track retired firefighters who take their lives. And, they are some absolutely sad stories. We, uh, you know, we lost 37 firefighters in our data that took their lives in the first week of retirement. And so it's been our mantra here at FBHA. We want you to have a great career, but we want you to have a better retirement. And organizations need to have these things in place. We're touching that a little bit later, but to your point about first week of retirement, you see the same thing with military and veterans. You know, they've, they've lost their sense of purpose, their sense of, of pride and duty, for lack of a better phrase, and they don't know what to do with their life. And, and it's very sad and unfortunate, so I'm glad you're addressing that. Do the subgroups within the first responder community, and by that I mean firefighters, police, EMS, and dispatchers, do they have distinct mental health needs or face additional challenges? I think they have some of the same. Um, I'll, uh, regarding law enforcement, I know a little bit about the culture because of my brother, and we have conversations in addition to our poking fun at each other. Um, the differences are, you know, firefighters, if uh, career departments, many of them mm -hmm. have 48 hour shifts. So you basically live at the station, share your meals. Uh, police officers uh, don't operate like that. In fact, in Houston, when we had Hurricane Harvey and all of the, the police officers had to stay at the station, they had to bring in cots and things because they don't have beds, whereas we do, you know, in the fire. Um, I also think that, you know, carrying, uh, you know, publicly carrying a, a sidearm, you know, your duty weapon. Uh, the, the other thing that I think that we all know some of the, how the media has um, 
I won't say attack, but how how the uh, public opinion of law enforcement officers due to a variety of things over the past couple of years has impacted all of them. Um, my, my brother has told me stories of, um, you know, being in uniform and going to a restaurant for lunch and, you know, feeling, you know, like an alien. Then there were times where he, he would go to a, a different restaurant and someone would come over and buy all of them their lunch. So you, you see these different, um, you know, viewpoints. But I, I, I think that's really hurt um, the whole law enforcement community. You know, when, when you look at moral injury, the, the police, I mean, they're trying out to be out there, protect people, and organizations are trying to defund them and, and talk bad about them. So that becomes a challenge every day they go to work. Plus, when you're struggling, whether it's depression, relationships, whatever it is, you know, fire, we have people around us. Police typically are, are riding alone by themselves. And what happens when you're alone? Your mind just races. And, and I see that in the dispatchers. They're, they're, they're fabulous people. Unbelievable. What they go through on a daily basis is just absolutely incredible. But they use different, their different senses. They're, they're listening and they're hearing these things as they uh, unfold. And those go right to their mind. And a lot of times they don't get closure. And when you don't have closure, your mind just races, races. What happened here? Did I do it right? Things like this. And how did that turn out? So the, there are different challenges for each one of these different uh, groups of first responders. And what are the, some of the common signs or symptoms that indicate a firefighter may be experiencing mental health challenges? Well, I think I alluded uh, a little bit to it, and that's the, the stress and anxiety. You know, we did a, a survey back in 2019, and we got uh, 740 responses in a five-day period, and only Almost 75% of them were dealing with stress and anxiety on a daily basis. I, I, I can't even imagine that happening. I mean, I went through it, but when you think about it at that time, you're really not. Uh, but once once again, that, that recklessness and impulsiveness, that anger, anger is a, a, such a, a commonplace in our world. The anger that how can people act that way? How do people treat each other? How do they treat themselves? What are the odds of that accident happening that took that person's life? Why are children being locked in cars and, and why are they drowning in pools? So you just start really becoming very negative in, in a lot of thought process. And the anger uh, is associated with it because we're looking at it from a, a common sense point of view. And these accidents, they're, they're not self-explanatory. They just they happen. And yet we start questioning those things. So it's, it becomes very, uh, um, it's a challenge on a daily basis then to hold in all that pain, whether you start isolating or turn to addictions or relationships, you just stop communicating. And, and that's a real problem in our world. And Jeff, and you've that, mentioned, oh, sorry, go ahead, Liz. And to follow on with what Jeff said, there's a term in the literature called uh, work home crossover stress. And so if you are going through some of the things that Jeff just described on shift, and then after say your career and after your 48 hours, you go home and you walk in. And if your spouse is a civilian or you know, not, in, not in the you know, world of what we see, you're not gonna describe everything in detail, but typically it's, oh, how was your day? You know, and the firefighter normally says fine which means fouled up, insecure, neurotic, and emotionally bankrupt, just saying. <laughs> but uh, after the, the fine, then it's uh, here, it's your turn, and hands him the two-year-old. And there's, there's so the, a re-entry, you know, is something that one of my friends has negotiated a re-entry. Um, he's remarried after, you know, um, a number of years after being divorced. The, um, the, the home stress also comes to work. You know, so if you're having relationship problems and your uh, financial problems can be very stressful. And if financial problems are driving someone to work uh, for three and four departments, you know, career in one, part-time duty crew in another. I mean, I know someone who works in four different departments. I mean, talk about multiplying exposures. Uh, so, so it's all of that. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that we do at Cypress Creek is that we involve the we, have, we started off with a spouse's day where we told the firefighters, okay, you guys stay home 
and we invited the spouses up. Um, and, you know, obviously we had, you know, we have male and female firefighters. So we had male and female spouses and we did a little bit on, okay, this is what, you know, the job is like, you know, we sanitized it of course, but, uh, and then we took them through all the equipment, showed them the training, you know, just kind of went through all that. And then talked, uh, talked about some of the signs and symptoms of behavioral health uh, problems so that they would have a sense of, you know, something, something to look out. And another thing, and I've heard this from a couple of other departments, is that when you involve the spouses um, independently, they can sometimes form a network where they can, you know, contact each other uh, for support. So there's um, a lot of benefit to that. I think addressing the family uh, that is around a first responder rather than just the first responder in isolation is really important. Jeff, I want to go back to what you touched on a moment ago. How about retired firefighters? You know, what's being done for them, if anything? Well, there's starting to be a better look into the retirement because when we started interviewing retirees, we found out very quickly they were struggling with loss of identity, loss of belonging, and lack of purpose. And when you walk around this earth with those three issues, it becomes a challenge for you to move forward in your life. And so we uh, we need to really start investing in our people a year before they're retiring, saying uh, these are the programs that uh, we want you to look at. We want to help you through education. Uh, look forward to something for retirement. And one of the things is that, you know what, if you're married or have a spouse or partner, go to marriage counseling and discuss, hey, what does that look like? Because when one has been gone for 20, 25 years, every third day or every, you know, every other day or whatever the schedule is. And then you walk in and say, hey, hey, I'm home. And the other one says, oh, all the time now? Oh, my, this is a problem. Well, they need to discuss with each other, what do you expect out of me and what can I expect out of you? And let's work on a game plan. That way we can reduce the, the amount of divorces and things. So it's uh, retirement is a big issue that we need to, and we are addressing here at FBHA. Dr. Elizabeth Anderson Fletcher and Jeff Dill, thank you so much for being with us today and the work that you do. Really appreciate it. It's an honor, Chris, no doubt about it. And of course, uh, with my good friend, uh, Liz, it's, it's always an honor working with her. I can see why. Thanks for having us on and good to see you again, Jeff. And thank you so much for being with us today, for our audience and joining for us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.